Thurlaw Airfield, Bedfordshire County, England, home of the 306th Bomb Group, 8th Air Force, U.S. Army Air Forces. It's before dawn, May 1st, 1943. The squadron duty officer enters one of the many Nyssen huts and turns on the lights. He calls out from a list of names and watches for the men to stir before moving on to the next hut. For the first time in the six weeks he has been in England, Staff Sergeant Maynard Smith's name is on that list. Smith is about to head out on his first combat mission as a ball turret gunner on a B-17F Flying Fortress. By the end of the day, three of the ten men aboard his bomber would be dead, another seriously wounded, and Staff Sergeant Smith would be nominated for the Medal of Honor. Smith was by all accounts a poor soldier, and you could probably say not that pleasant of a human being. Certainly not someone you would think of as likely to be a hero. However, on this day, and on remarkably his first combat mission, Sergeant Smith's courageous actions would save his airplane and crew. Welcome to the Aviation Medals of Honor podcast. This is part one of three episodes on the B-17 Flying Fortress. Today we'll talk about Staff Sergeant Maynard Smith, the gunner, some of the challenges faced in aero gunnery, as well as the development of the B-17 from the prototype Model 299 through the B-17F. Additionally, I'll cover the early days of the B-17 in the 8th Air Force and how it was organized and employed. Now, without further ado, onto the B-17 Flying Fortress. The name alone conjures up images of some of the greatest air battles ever fought, of hundreds of aircraft dueling it out in the skies over Europe, of determined men who faced down the mighty Luftwaffe and were never turned back. By the end of the war, 17 Medals of Honor would be awarded to aircrew in the B-17, by far the most of any aircraft type in any war. And while it was outnumbered by the arguably superior B-24 Liberator, the B-17 seemed to have a certain something about her that the B-24 lacked. Able to sustain massive damage and continue flying, the Flying Fortress brought the war to Germany in the years before the invasion of Normandy. Alongside the iconic P-51 Mustang, it would come to symbolize the Army Air Forces in Europe during World War II. Let's jump back a few years, though. The B-17 came from an interwar design, at a time when the promise of a bomber that could outrun and outgun pursuit fighters looked like a possibility. What was to become the B-17 Flying Fortress emerged out of a 1934 U.S. Army Air Corps proposal for a multi-engine bomber to replace the Martin B-10. The minimum specifications called for a bomber that was capable of flying 10 hours at 10,000 feet, having a top speed of at least 200 miles an hour, and carrying a 2,000-pound bomb load. Out of this proposal, Boeing developed the prototype Model 299. The 299 was a four-engine bomber, based in part off the Boeing 247 twin-engine airliner, which was in an innovative design, but not a great commercial success, and its experimental XB-15 four-engine bomber, which was still on the drawing board and actually wouldn't fly until over two years after the 299's first flight. And while that might not seem like the best starting points for your new bomber, Boeing was confident in their design. They would be in competition with the Douglas and Martin companies, each of them would enter a more conventional and safer, at least from the developmental standpoint, twin-engine bomber. 
Funded entirely by Boeing, the Model 299 was rolled out for its first flight on July 16, 1935. At the time, it was the largest land plane ever built in the U.S. The sleek and shiny aluminum bomber bristled with 530 caliber machine guns for self-protection. And while a far cry from the 1350 cals that later B-17G would carry, it would nevertheless earn its famous nickname that day when a Seattle Times reporter explained why it's a flying fortress upon seeing the 299 for the first time. Boeing's PR department made sure that that name stuck. The 299 just didn't look good. Its performance exceeded all expectations of the Army Air Corps during flight testing. It obtained a top speed of 236 miles an hour, a service ceiling of 25,000 feet, and was capable of a 4,800-pound bomb load. By comparison, in 1935, the U.S. Navy's frontline fighter was a biplane, the Grumman F-2F, with a top speed of 231 miles an hour. The Army Air Corps' frontline fighter was the open-cockpit, fixed-landing-gear Boeing P-26, with a top speed of 234 miles an hour. Both the Grumman and Boeing fighters had a service ceiling of about 27,000 feet. The Army Air Corps was intrigued by a bomber whose performance was on par with the best fighters of the day, and the 299 was clearly superior to both the Martin and Douglas twin-engine bomber designs. This enthusiasm was evidenced by an Air Corps proposal to buy 65 of the Boeing bomber before the competition was even complete. However, on October 30, 1935, the 299 crashed on takeoff killing the two pilots and destroying the prototype. While the accident was not the result of any design issues, without an airplane, Boeing was unable to complete the evaluation. So what did cause the 299 to crash? Well, it was the failure of the pilots to remove the control locks during preflight. While it wasn't noticeable on the ground roll, as airspeed increased and the aircraft lifted off the ground, the nose continued to rise. With the controls locked, the pilots weren't able to counter the rising nose and the aircraft stalled and crashed. Overshadowing the performance of the 299, the crash raised doubts within some circles of the Army about the complexity of the Boeing design. If experienced test pilots couldn't handle the Boeing bomber, how could operational pilots be expected to safely fly it? Boeing's solution was simple, but revolutionary. A written checklist. Now, it seems strange to any pilot today, but up to this point in aviation, pilots were just expected to memorize procedures. The 299 crash proved that this was no longer sufficient for the new breed of complex aircraft coming out, and the checklist quickly came into widespread use throughout aviation circles. It continues to this day to be an integral part of flight deck safety and crew coordination. And while it may have alleviated some concerns about the complexity of the Boeing design, the crash of the 299 wasn't the only issue with the Boeing proposal. The Boeing bomber was almost twice the cost of the next best aircraft in the competition, the Douglas B-18. Remember, this was the mid-1930s, and the nation was still locked in the Great Depression. Military budgets were tightly controlled by a stingy Congress, and while there was an element within the Air Corps advocating for a strong strategic bomber force, it was only one part of the Air Corps, which was itself only a small part of a larger army. In the end, it was both the crash of the 299 and the cost of the Boeing design that caused the contract to be awarded to Douglas and the previous order for 65 Boeing aircraft to be canceled. However, proponents of the strategic bomber in the Air Corps saw the potential in the Boeing design and managed to push through an order for 13 aircraft, now designated the YB-17 for testing. The aircraft, and possibly the Boeing company itself, which had invested so much of its own money in it, had been given a lifeline. 
Testing and evaluation of the Boeing bomber continued on a small scale for the next several years, centered around the 2nd Bombardment Group at Langley Field, Virginia, commanded by Lieutenant Colonel Robert Olds. As a historical side, his son Robin would later become a triple ace and an Air Force legend as commander of the 8th Tactical Fighter Wing during the Vietnam War. The Air Force today celebrates the younger Olds through Mustache March, when Amron tried to match his famous and decidedly outer eggs handlebar mustache. Anyway, back to the 1930s. The fate of the B-17 was in the hands of the 2nd Bomb Group. They needed to demonstrate the effectiveness of the new bomber while showing that it was safe to operate. In this regard, they succeeded by operating the YB-17s for three years without any serious incidents. Meanwhile, they showed the fortress's potential through several record-breaking long-distance flights. Among them was a flight in February 1938 that took a group of six YB-17s from Miami to Buenos Aires. 5,000-mile trip to much acclaim in the press. A couple months later, the 2nd Bomb Group would intrude in the Navy's domain to intercept the Italian ocean liner Rex over 600 miles out to sea. The lead navigator on that mission was a first lieutenant by the name of Curtis LeMay, who would go on to command a bomb group in England and later direct the B-29 campaign against Japan as commander of the 21st Bomber Command. He would become the 5th Chief of Staff of the Air Force in 1961 and was the inspiration for the over-the-top General Jack D. Ripper character in the classic movie Dr. Strangelove. LeMay was an extremely effective and demanding combat leader. I can't help but think that he would never make it in today's Air Force, probably leave from command for fostering a hostile work environment. Anyway, as war clouds gathered over Europe in mid-1939, the YB-17s completed operational testing, and the go-ahead was given to equip two bomb groups with B-17Bs, the first production model of the fort incorporated minor improvements over the test aircraft. The C-model fortress quickly followed the B. Its major difference was to do away with the gun blisters and add self-sealing fuel tanks. It was this model fortress which would first see combat. 20 B-17Cs, called the Fortress 1 in Royal Air Force service, were shipped to England in May of 1941. The Battle of Britain was over at this point. The Spitfires and Hurricanes of the RAF had triumphed over the bombers of the Luftwaffe. The lessons learned by both the Brits and the Germans was that daylight bombers were vulnerable to fighters and anti-aircraft defenses. Both had switched their strategic bombing campaigns over to the night due to unsustainable daytime losses. However, with the arrival of the Fortress Ones, the RAF would again experiment with daylight precision bombing. U.S. Army Air Corps observers warned them that the B-17C, with its known shortcomings, should only be used for training while awaiting delivery of the more combat-capable B-17E, but that advice was ignored. The hard-pressed Brits threw the unsuitable aircraft and undertrained aircrew into combat. Compounding the aircraft issues were tactical missteps. The Brits employed the fortress in small numbers at high altitudes, with three aircraft bombing from 30,000 plus feet being the norm. In these small numbers, the aircraft lacked the protective firepower provided by a larger formation. The lack of tail guns and an effective belly gun made the fortress ones vulnerable to attack from the rear and below. Offensively, Inexperienced bombardiers working from high altitudes just about guaranteed ineffective results. The U.S. Army Air Corps, which was by now called the Army Air Forces, would later use 24 to 27,000 feet as ideal altitudes for their B-17s. The formations were released on command of experienced group or squadron lead bombardiers. The RAF results were predictable. 
It's returned to a daylight strategic bombing campaign with last just 26 raids before the fortresses were pulled from a frontline combat role in September of 1941. By that time, eight of the 20 had been destroyed or lost with minimal effect on the enemy. The remaining Fortress 1s were relegated to secondary support roles and the British carried on with their night campaign. While the RAF was done with strategic daylight bombing, proponents in the U.S. were not dissuaded. After all, they had warned the English of the limitations of the sea model and the requirements for highly trained crews. The Army Air Forces would press ahead with the B-17 as the cornerstone of its daylight bomber force through an order for 512 B-17Es, which finally put their fortress into large-scale production. By the time the line ended in 1945, 12,731 had been built, making the B-17 the third most produced bomber of all time, behind the B-24 and the Junkers Ju-88. Incidentally, the Douglas B-18 bomber, which beat out the B-17 in the original competition, would produce just 350 aircraft and saw only a limited role in World War II as an anti-submarine platform and trainer. When the war kicked off for the U.S. on December 7, 1941, the B-17E was the current production model of the fortress. The E fixed some of the bigger deficiencies of the earlier versions. A larger tail was added, and a twin-50 tailgun position was incorporated for rear protection. The next-to-worthless bathtub ventral turret was upgraded with the addition of the Sperry Ball turret, which greatly increased fields of fire and increased the firepower to a twin-50 configuration. Other improvements included the addition of a Sperry top turret, brought the defensive firepower up to 1050 cal and 130 cal machine guns. While some B-17C and D models were still in the inventory at the outbreak of the war and saw limited combat, the E was the first offensive version of the B-17, able to, in theory anyway, penetrate enemy defenses unescorted. Reality would turn out to be a little bit different. More on that later. The B-17E would play a minor but interesting role in the Japanese strike on Pearl Harbor. On the morning of the attack, a flight of eight B-17Es along with four B-17Cs were due to arrive from the mainland. When the primitive radar of the day picked up a large return that morning, which in reality was the Japanese strike force, it was dismissed as the expected flight of B-17s and a warning never given. Now a few more minutes of warning isn't going to change the end result that day, but maybe the defenders inflict a bit more punishment on the attack of Japanese, or maybe a pre-warned fleet takes a few less casualties. Although most likely the warning doesn't filter down to the fleet in time to really change anything. As it actually happens, no warning is given, and the fortresses eventually arrive over Pearl Harbor in the midst of the Japanese attack. Low on fuel from the long overwater flight, the unarmed fortresses were targets of both the Japanese and spooked American anti-aircraft gunners as they tried to land. Elsewhere in the Pacific, the bulk of the Army Air Force's B-17s were destroyed on the ground December 8th at Clark Field in the Philippines. Overall, the B-17 would play a minor role in the Pacific, with a longer-range B-24 and later the B-29 handling the heavy bomber role in the war against the Empire of Japan. It would be in the skies over Europe with the 8th Air Force that the B-17 would rise to fame. Although the initial combat groups were equipped with the B-17E, the F version quickly replaced them, and the bulk of the 8th Air Force missions in 1942 and into 1943 were flown in the F model. The F was crewed by 10 men, Defended with up to 12 50 cal machine guns and carried an up to 8,000 pound bomb load at altitudes up to 35,000 feet. While an imposingly large aircraft for the time at 73 feet long, in comparison to modern aircraft it looks surprisingly small. The fort doesn't stand out among the C-17s and C-130s, 
or even modern fighters on the flight line of an air show. At only 10 feet shorter than the B-17, the F-15E Strike Eagle carries two crew and up to 23,000 pounds of ordnance, three to four times what the B-17 would typically carry. The pinnacle of Boeing bombers, the B-52, soared twice as big as a fortress, coming in at 160 feet and carrying up to 70,000 pounds of ordnance, more than an entire squadron of B-17s. Already seven years old at the outbreak of the war, and with its eventual replacement, the B-29 already in development, the B-17 was beginning to show its age. While it was a technical marvel in the mid-1930s, and a match in speed and altitude for most fighters of the day, by the time the fortress entered large-scale combat in 1942, this was no longer the case. Its opponents weren't the first generation of monoplane fighters of the mid-1930s. The bombers of the 8th Air Force would be facing the deadly Messerschmitt 109s and Bach Wolf 190s, capable of 400-plus miles an hour, service signaling in the high 30s, and carrying deadly 20mm cannons. Now, seven years doesn't sound long when looking at modern military aircraft where it's common to have a 10-year developmental cycle, followed by a 40- to 50-year operational lifespan. After all, the B-52 is still in Air Force service almost 70 years after its first flight. However, that was not the case during the 30s and 40s as flying technology advanced rapidly. The Fortress would start its service at the tail end of the biplane era and end in the jet age. However, while the B-17 was already beginning to show its age, and it was outclassed by several Allied bombers in range and payload, it was a forgiving aircraft, a durable and steady bombing platform, and her crews loved her. There would be further developments of the B-17 resulting in the G model, but for Staff Sergeant Smith's story, I'll end in 1943 with F. Now on to the organization. How did the Mighty Eighth come to dominate the European skies? Well, it began small enough with a contingent of seven Army Air Force personnel that arrived in England on February 20th, 1942. Under command of Brigadier General Ira Eaker, these seven Americans would lay the foundations for what would become the Mighty Eighth, which at its peak strength would have over 200,000 personnel and well over 3,000 aircraft. That would be several years in the future, though. In 1942, the value of a strategic bombing campaign by the resources it would consume in people and materials was an unknown. Was this the best use of resources? There wasn't consensus in the Army, let alone the War Department the fledgling 8th would need to prove its worth. It would start that process when the first B-17 in the European theory operations would arrive, landing on English soil on July 1, 1942. However, it would be some time before the first heavy bomber combat mission would be flown, as aircrew required additional training and the logistics of bases and support were worked out with the British hosts. In August of 1942, the 97th Bomb Group would be declared combat ready. It will be the first of what eventually number 40 heavy bomber groups in the 8th. The group was the nucleus of the Army Air Force organization at the time, the aviation equivalent of an infantry regiment. It consisted of the actual combat aircraft and all the ground support personnel, from mechanics to MPs to typists, that were necessary to support that effort. A heavy bomber group's combat power was centered on four operational squadrons of 8 to 10 aircraft each. Usually three of the four squadrons would participate in any given raid, so a heavy bomber group in 1942 and 1943 would typically launch 18 to 21 aircraft, although the remaining squadron would sometimes be sorted as well in a max effort. As the first operational group, the 97th flew the first heavy bomber mission for the 8th Air Force on August 17, 1942, when 12 B-17Es struck a railroad marshalling area just across the channel in Rouen, France. 
flown under heavy RAF Spitfire escort and in ideal weather conditions. The bombing results were fairly accurate and all B-17s returned safely, although two of the Spitfire escorts were lost to German fighters. It was a far cry from the thousand plane raids of 1944 and 45, but the 8th was in the strategic bombing business. Throughout August, the 97th continued its raids, with never more than 12 B-17s. The Luftwaffe was not particularly aggressive in countering these small daytime raids as both sides felt each other out. In September, the 301st and the 92nd bomb groups joined the veteran 97th in the fight. On September 6, 1942, the bombers met their first determined opposition in which Focke-Wolf 190s downed two of the 30 bombers. That might not seem like a big number, but it was almost 7% of the attacking force. I don't think any of us would like to play those odds for the 25 missions required to complete a tour. Indeed, only about one-third of the 8th Air Force heavy bomber aircrew in 1942 and 1943 would complete their tour. Just let that sink in. Two out of three would be dead, seriously wounded, or prisoners of war. It's hard to imagine the courage of the crews to man up the bombers mission after mission knowing the odds they faced. Losses notwithstanding, the strategic bomber force in England continued to grow through 1942, with liberators from the 93rd Bomb Group joining four groups of fortresses, the 97th, the 301st, the 92nd, and the latest B-17 group, the 306th. On October 9th, the 8th was sent out a force of 108 heavy bombers to strike the Lille Steelworks in Belgium. Four bombers were lost and 46 damaged despite a heavy escort of Brit and Army Air Force fighters. This would be the heaviest raid for six months as combat power was diverted to support Operation Torch, the Allied invasion of North Africa. Thus, the campaign in Europe from October 1942 to May 1943 was carried out in a large part by four B-17 groups and two B-24 groups, although the latter were often unavailable due to detachments to the African campaign. At this point, the question of the effectiveness of the strategic bombing campaign was still very much open to debate. The 8th had shown that the daylight bombers could make it through with acceptable losses. Less than 10% was considered acceptable. And achieved acceptable bombing results. However, the overall effect on the German war effort was minimal. Weather was often a factor, causing missions to be scrubbed in the planning phase or recalled while airborne. The requirement for visual bombing conditions only allowed for one mission every five days on average. From the start of combat operations to the end of 1942, only 30 missions were completed. In contrast, the RAF had a very small weather cancellation rate since it didn't require visual acquisition of the target and were bombing targets almost nightly. The 8th Air Force would endure a brutal campaign over the next several months in order to validate the daylight precision bombing stance of the U.S. Army Air Forces. Tactics would have to be improved to minimize losses and improve bombing results in order to justify the large cost of men and materials. While losses during the first few months were relatively light, that would change as the Luftwaffe adjusted their defenses to deal with a growing threat from the Americans. Initially, the Luftwaffe was focused on the nighttime threat and didn't have the aircraft and crews in place to put up a vigorous daytime defense. However, by 1943, experienced fighter pilots and aircraft were pulled from other fronts in order to counter the increasing danger posed by the 8th Air Force's heavies. The Luftwaffe worked on its tactics as well, switching from the standard recorder attacks to frontal attacks. The fortresses were well defended from the rear, with multiple twin 50 turrets often able to engage an attacker, which was exposed for a relatively long time due to the slower closure from the rear of the B-17s. A fighter closing from the tail only approaches at the overtake speed. 
For example, an ME109 doing 350 knots against a B17 doing 175 would only close at 175 knots. Exposing is the defensive fire of the B17 for 7 to 8 seconds. Switch to a forward quarter attack and the closure rate is cumulative for 525 knots. and cuts down the exposure time to defensive fire to 1 to 2 seconds. Additionally, the B-17Fs had less guns available to defend in the forward quarter. So forward quarter attacks had the effect of exposing the Luftwaffe fighters to less guns for less time. And while it was true that the forward quarter attack also cuts down on the tracking time for the attacking fighter, they had the advantage of shooting bigger, non-maneuvering targets. The forward quarter attack also had the benefit of exposing the most vulnerable parts of the bomber, the cockpit and the engines, more than any other attack vector. While attack methodology varied between different aircraft types and units, the Luftwaffe had found an effective tactic with forward quarter attacks. Through early 1943, the German defenses continued to be honed as the defenders gained experience and increased their numbers. By mid-1943, it would reach its peak of effectiveness, able to inflict devastating losses on the mass formations of bombers. It was during this period of increasing German defenses that Staff Sergeant Smith arrived in England, part of the massive expansion of the Army Air Forces. Showing up in England during this period, Sergeant Smith was probably cursing his rotten luck. Born May 19, 1911, he had led a privileged life due to his father's successful career as a lawyer and a circuit judge. From early on, Smith had earned a reputation as a spoiled little troublemaker. Today he might be called a trust fund baby, never really working hard at school or any job. His family's wealth insulated Maynard from the effects of the Great Depression and he avoided the hard times that would shape the character of much of the greatest generation. When his father died in 1934, he left the family with enough savings for a 23-year-old Maynard to continue his life of leisure. Indeed, as many lined up outside recruiting offices on December 8, 1941, Smith was not there. Quite the opposite, it seems he may have been content to sit out the war had it not been for an incident that landed in front of a judge. It seems Maynard was not paying support for his ex-wife and child from a brief marriage. As another August 31st, 1942 Army inductee recalled, quote, When I went into the Army, a group of 30 of us assembled on the courthouse steps for a picture. While we were lining up, the sheriff came down the steps with Maynard Hokie Smith beside him in handcuffs. Unquote. Hokie was a childhood nickname for Smith. Later in the Army, he would become known as Snuffy. It wasn't a term of endearment from his fellow airmen and lives on today in the Air Force as a generic term for a uh, well, let's say underachieving airman. With his path in the military now set, Maynard is off the boot camp at Sheverfield, Texas. At some point, he decides to volunteer for the Army Air Force as a gunner, not from a love of aviation or a desire to get in the fight, but because Maynard pretty much hated being told what to do. The job of aerial gunner came with a promotion to NCO, so Maynard would have a bit of rank to insulate him. Indeed, by the time he showed up in England less than eight months later, Maynard was a staff sergeant. Before that, however, he was off to Harlingen, Texas for gunnery training. Sergeant Smith would be one of over 48,000 students who would go through the five, later six-week Harlingen Aerial Gunnery School during World War II, which itself was one of three stateside schools training aerial gunners. Now, I should tell you something about the massive effort and manpower and material that was happening during the Second World War. The three aerial gunnery schools trained about 150,000 students during World War II, which is almost half the size of the entire U.S. Air Force today. So let's follow Sergeant Smith's story shortly to look at the effect of all this training and manpower devoted to aerial gunners. 
150,000 gunners with a equivalent of 10 infantry divisions. Now that's not small potatoes considering the U.S. Army fielded a total of 91 divisions in the war. Could those aerial gunners have been better utilized elsewhere? Well, that's kind of a mixed bag. Without defensive fire, the enemy fighters could just saddle up behind a bomber and shoot until they downed it. Obviously, that couldn't be allowed to happen, and some defensive firepower was necessary. However, post-war analysis shows that the gunners were nowhere near as effective as they were believed to be. If the 8th Air Force bomber claims were taken at face value, the Luftwaffe would have ceased to exist in 1943. It's commonly accepted that the bombers' claims were inflated in the 6 to 7 times range, sometimes much more. So why the huge discrepancy in numbers? Well, a single fighter slashing through a formation of heavies could have several different gunners firing on him. A fighter going down was invariably claimed by multiple gunners on multiple different aircraft. At the speeds the aerial battles were taking place, a gunner might only get a split second to fire and assess his results. A puff of smoke from a fighter's engine as he pours on the power, or smoke from his cannons could easily be mistaken for combat damage. Even if hit, the Germans had the advantage of being over friendly territory, and a damaged fighter wasn't necessarily lost. With all that being said, it's totally understandable how claims could be honestly inflated by crews that desperately wanted to believe they were inflicting as much punishment as they were taking. The reality was that shooting out a fighter was actually a fairly difficult proposition. Before anything else, let's talk about the environmental factors. The B-17 is an unpressurized aircraft, so the crew is all on oxygen. The windows, at least the waste gun positions on B-17Fs, were just open to the elements. Which over Europe, at their operational altitudes, the B-17s meant dealing with extreme temperatures in about the minus 40 degree range. To combat those extreme conditions, the gunner was wearing heavy flying gear. A bulky jacket, pants, an oxygen mask, sometimes a 20-pound flak jacket over the top. It's difficult enough just to move around in. Now put that gunner in a cramp bomber, especially in the waist and nose. Armored with a 65-pound Browning M2 50-caliber machine gun, which he had to maneuver on target while fighting the effects of the slipstream, the recoil of the weapon, and the bucking of the bomber jockeying to stay in formation. Now, the stabilized turret guns made some of that better, but still not easy. To make things more difficult, the gunner can't just put his sight on the target and fire. Actually, that in almost all situations would guarantee a miss. Unlike firing a rifle at a stationary target on the rifle range, the rounds from a gun position on a forward are imparted with a forward velocity equal to the forward speed of the aircraft. Crews dealing with any kind of offset attack would actually have to fire between the tail of the aircraft and the enemy. Kind of counterintuitive. The gunners need to solve for range and lead, and even then, any maneuvering of the target could cause a miss. It's a little bullet in a big sky with plenty of opportunities to miss. A fighter pilot's axiom to this day for being successful in employing guns is to shoot big targets. Basically, close the range until you can't miss. Now, that doesn't really work for bomber gunners trying to prevent damage to their own aircraft. A couple of things the heavy bombers did have going for them was a high rate and a high volume of fire. If you put enough lead in the sky, eventually you're going to hit something. If you get multiple gunners from multiple aircraft engaging the enemy, that big sky little bullet theory begins to look not so great as an attacking fighter. That's why I said earlier it's a bit of a mixed bag. While an individual gunner may not have much of an effect, a formation of gunners could. It was well known to the air crew that an aircraft falling out of the protective fire of the formation was living on borrowed time. Stragglers rarely made it home when the fighters were up. The strength of the defensive fire of the B-17s lay in the mass fire of the formation. 
If through mass defensive fire, the bombers forced the Germans to modify their attacks, or maybe not press them home as much as they could in the face of a wall of tracers, then they were effective, even if they weren't shooting down aircraft in the numbers claimed. Ultimately, even the concentrated defensive fire from a formation of heavy bombers would prove to be insufficient in the face of determined fighter opposition. The myth of the self-escorting bomber was stretched during 1943 and then shattered in October that year after the outright loss of 60 bombers on the mission to Schweinfurt Bombing Works. The 8th would not penetrate deep into Germany again until February 1944. The Luftwaffe had in effect defeated the unescorted bomber and achieved air superiority over much of Germany that would only be taken back when long-range Allied fighters started entering the mix in large numbers in late 1943 and in early 1944. Okay. Back to Sergeant Smith. Due to his small 5 foot 4 inch, 130 pound size, Smith would be assigned to the ball turret. Hanging half out of the underside of the bomber, the ball turret was isolated and cramped. The book Black Thursday describes the ball turret position as such. Quote, Unquestionably the loneliest position in the Flying Fortress, or the Liberator, is that of the ball turret gunner. The turret is like some grotesque, swollen eyeball of steel and glass and guns that seems to hang precariously from the belly of the B-17. It's a hellish, stinking position in battle. The gunner must hunch up his body, drop his knees, and work into a half ball to meet the curving lines of the turret. The guns are to each side of his head, and they stab from the turret eyeball like two even splinters. Jailed in his little spherical powerhouse, the turret gunner literally aims his own body at enemy fighters. Working both hands and feet in deft coordination, spinning and tilting, and then depressing switches atop the gun grip handles to fire the two weapons. It is the most unenviable position in a bomber, any bomber, and the man most unlikely to escape from a blazing B 17 is that lonely soul in the ball. Unquote. Smith completed training and shipped off to England as a replacement, joining the 306 bomb group at Thurlai in March 1943. Upon arrival, Smith sat for a period of six weeks without flying a combat mission. Now that strikes me as very odd. Most were getting into combat within days. On all my combat deployments, we were operating within a day or two of getting in theater, not weeks. It just seems highly unusual for someone to sit that long, especially as this was a time when the 8th was desperate for air crewmen due to the losses that were averaging 8% per mission. On April 5th, the 306 lost four of its 20 aircraft in an attack against Antwerp. On April 17th, it lost 10 of its 26 aircraft launched against Bremen. That's 140 men in under two weeks, not including the wounded onboard aircraft that did manage to return. These were tough times for the crews of the heavies. Quoting an unknown airman from the 384th Bomb Group, again from the book Black Thursday, quote, It is little wonder that airmen at Grafton Underwood, Grafton Underwood was the home station of the 304th, back to the quote, it is little wonder that the airmen of Grafton Underwood have by this time developed the idea that it is impossible to complete a full tour of duty. It has come to be an accepted fact that you will be shot down eventually. The 384th entered combat four months ago with a combat flying street of 363 officers and men. In these four months, we lost more than we started with. We are just as strong due to replacements that are continually coming in, but there are few originals left. Unquote. That he did not join a crew in that period definitely says something about Smith's growing reputation as difficult to get along with. Crew concept was critical to the eighth's efforts. Many of the original crews had trained together for months prior to coming to England and forged close bonds through shared sacrifice and hard, dangerous work. 
Sergeant Smith showed up alone and had to fit in with the closely bonded crews that trained and fought and bled together. In that respect, it would have been difficult for anyone to fit in, let alone someone of Smith's temperament. But eventually, after six weeks in country, Smith was called for a mission. He would join the veteran crew of First Lieutenant Lewis Johnson aboard B-17F serial number 42-29649. Seasoned veterans, the crew was one of the lucky few that had been relatively unscathed by their combat tour. Indeed, Lieutenant Johnson, on his 25th mission, would joke as they turned off target that day that he needed something to go wrong in order to have a good story to tell from his combat tour. That was a statement he would come to regret soon enough. With the mission on, ground crew would prepare through the night as the air crew tried to sleep, a difficult prospect for many as they faced the uncertainty of the next day. The wake-up call would come early, typically around 2 to 3 a.m. After a quick shave to ensure oxygen masks would seal, the men were off to breakfast. Pilot Charles Alling would describe the morning ritual in his book, Mighty Fortress, as such. Quote, I woke to the whistling wind swirling around the hut and the deliberate, determined footsteps of a sergeant. You're operational. Out of the sack, men, he announced. He stood in the open doorway, bringing with him the familiar morning freeze. This was another cold, brisk day, one of those days that chill penetrates your bones. No one stirred, so he followed with another announcement. This is war, men. Move your butts. Sardin left in stony silence. Reluctantly, we rose from our covers, and in less than a minute, we were dressed in flying gear. I slung my heavy, fleece-lined leather flying jacket over my shoulder and walked through the biting cold of the washroom, where I doused my face with cold water and soap. Outside, an army truck was waiting for us. We jumped in and sat on damp, unforgiving wooden benches, huddled under a heavy tarpaulin, seeking shelter and protection from the falling snow. Someone tapped on the side of the truck, and with a jolt, we were on our way to the mess hall for breakfast. Artificial eggs, rolls, and instant coffee. We went through the dining motions quite mechanically. If you wanted salt or pepper, you pointed. If nothing happened, you issued a mumbled command. There were no conversations, no kind or thoughtful words. Guys were tense and anxious, and some may have wondered if their time was up, but I couldn't dwell on those thoughts. I was watching the time, so I could not be late for the briefing. Unquote. About an hour and a half after their wake-up call, the men would assemble for the briefing. Hidden behind curtains at the front of the large briefing room would be the target for the day. The men awaited their fate as the briefing officer entered the room. Would it be an easy one, a milk run in the parlance of the crews, or a deep penetration sure to cause a heavy toll? Today, as the curtain was drawn back, it revealed the target to be the sub-pens at St. Nazaire, or Flak City to the heavy bomber air crew of the 8th. As the murmurs died down, the operations officer would have briefed the rendezvous and route, along with other mission details. He would be followed by the intel officer who would brief enemy defenses and target details. Lastly, the weather officer would brief expected conditions en route and in the target area. Today wasn't great, with marginal conditions for visual bombing expected at the target. Altogether, briefings were about a 45-minute process. With the brief complete, the crews would gather gear for the trip out to the flight line. As pilot Charles Allen recalls, quote, We collected our flak vests, fleece line jackets, heated suits, gloves, parachutes, and 45 caliber pistols. I grabbed my flight helmet, headset, and throat mic, and threw my oxygen mask over my shoulder along with survival kits with escape routes, candy, and gum. We picked up oranges and Hershey bars on the way out, something I usually did before a flight 
although I never recall taking a bite of anything along the way. Unquote. Arriving about one hour prior to engine start, the guns were mounted, fuses set into the bombs, pre-flights completed. The men then had a few minutes of waiting. Would they go today, or would the low clouds and drizzle over England, or the marginal weather on the continent scrub the mission? Word came down that the mission was a go, and Smith and crew manned their aircraft. On this mission, 18 aircraft from the 306 would be taking off at 30-second intervals into the weather. I'll talk more in a later episode about challenges the pilots faced. For now, suffice it to say that takeoff and assembly weren't without risk. Accidents were an almost daily occurrence which would claim many lives over the course of the war as tired, inexperienced aircrew flew overloaded and worn-out aircraft through the challenging British weather. However, on today's mission, things went smoothly for the 306 as its 18 crews joined up and headed to the assembly point to join the 91st, 303rd, and 305th bomb groups for the attack on St. Nazaire. Total schedule for the day were 78, but the bad weather and mechanical issues forced many to abort. Ultimately, only 29 fortresses would make the attack that day. The route to the target took them offshore to skirt the dangerous enemy defenses on the Brest Peninsula and was unopposed. Nearing the target, the flak opened up on the bomber formations. Today, possibly due to the poor weather conditions over the target, Flak City put up only a light and ineffective barrage. However, the weather affected the bombing results as well, with what hits that were observed falling short of the target. Overall, poor effort by the 8th. With bombs released, the formation made a turn for the Atlantic. Feet wet over the ocean and safe from Flak, the gunners kept a wary eye out for fighters as the force headed for England in safety. The poor weather conditions continued on the return flight, but through a break in the clouds, the lead navigator spotted the English coast and the formation began to descend to land. But the navigator had made an error. It was occupied France, not England, which they were descending over, right into the guns abreast. This time it was a heavy and accurate barrage against the low-flying bombers. Smith would later describe the flak as such. Quote, First you would hear a tremendous whoosh, then the bits of shrapnel patter against the sides of the turret. Then you see the smoke. Unquote. Smith watched as one bomber was hit by flak, falling to the earth in smoke and flames. Colonel Peasley, the mission commander on the Schweinfurt mission a couple months later, would describe watching a stricken fortress fall. Quote, a few hundred feet in front of us, a bomber has been hit by a rocket. I catch sight of it just as the right wing starts to fold upward. The fuselage opens like an eggshell, and a man dressed in a flying suit spins clear out in front. I see the pilot still at the controls. Then the plane is swept with flame. The right wing breaks free, and with two engines still spinning, it drifts to the rear, flaming at the ragged end. The shattered mess disappears under our left wing, and the sky is clean again. Unquote. Caught in the heart of the AAA environment, the bombers dive for the deck to reduce exposure to the guns. As the bombers ascended, an estimated 15 to 20 Focke-Wulf 190s from the veteran JG-2 swooped in to pick apart the ragged formation. The Vertigo, a B-17F of the 91st Bomb Group, was the first to follow the German cannon fire. With a dead pilot, the co-pilot managed to ditch the bomber in the channel. Its five survivors would become German POWs. The 306 would come to their attack shortly after the Vertigo fell. From his position in the ball turret, Sergeant Smith engaged the enemy fighters along with the rest of the gunners. Co-pilot 2nd Lieutenant Robert McCall recalled, quote, The slugs came all around us. The whole ship shook and kind of bonged like the sound effect in a Walt Disney movie. Unquote. 
McCollum would go on to command his own B-17 and be killed in action on October 14, 1943, on the infamous Schweinfurt raid. The book Black Thursday describes a fighter attack as such. Quote, Within the bomber, the noise is deafening. The gunners shout out the positions of the incoming fighters. There's the pounding roar of the four powerful engines, the background bass hiss of the air rushing by. The machine guns hammer and bark and cough deeply. Their vibrations ripple through the fortress. They can be heard their terrible whoomp of a rocket exploding nearby. There is the heart-stopping sound of metal clashing against metal, of cannon shells exploding against wings and fuselage and engines, the staccato impact of bullets and steel fragments ripping through aluminum and steel. Unquote. Smith recalled their encounter as such, quote, I was watching the tracers from a Jerry fighter come puffing by our tail when suddenly there was a terrific explosion, unquote. Up front in the cockpit, Lieutenant Johnson knew they'd been hit. He ordered his flight engineer in the top turret aft to assess the damage. Tech Sergeant Fahrenheit opened the door behind the cockpit, only to see a wall of flames. I can't go back there, he would tell Lieutenant Johnson. Again, back to the book Black Thursday to describe the chaotic moments inside a fortress on fire. Quote, Now there's good reason for the weak bowels and the shriveled stomach because the fortress is hit. Its inner walls are covered with green insulation that is thick and heavy. The shell is hit right in the middle of the stuff, and the fire moves quickly along the shredded edges. Fire! The most dreaded thing in an airplane loaded with fuel and ammunition and bombs. Fire that can easily rush away from all possible control. That licks and sears and burns at men and metal alike. In a moment, the green insulation is blazing fiercely. The smoke gets thicker and thicker. It chokes and stings the eyes. It's hard to see a goddamn thing, and hell yawns wide just outside the hatches and doors of the airplane. The fear is so bad now that surprisingly, it freezes inside the men. Unquote. Back in the ball turret, Smith had lost the electric control of his turret, disabling it. Additionally, the attack had severed intercom communications with the cockpit to the rear of the aircraft. With an inoperative turret and cut off from the rest of the crew, Smith cranked himself out of the turret to see the aircraft on fire both to the front and towards the tail. As he climbs up into the waste compartment, he sees the radio operator, Tech Sergeant Harry Bean, a veteran of 21 missions, rush past him. In Smith's words, quote, He made a beeline for the gun hatch and dived out. I glanced down and watched him hit the horizontal stabilizer, bounce off, and open the chute. The poor guy didn't even have a May West. I think it was burned off. Unquote. Panic spreads in the back of the bomber. The two waste gunners also hasten to abandon the stricken bomber. One had already jumped while the other was hung up in the gun hatch. Smith recalled, quote, I pulled him back in and asked him if the heat was too much for him. All he did was stare at me and say, I'm getting out of here. I helped him open the rear escape door and watched him bail out. His chute opened okay. Unquote. Smith was at a decision point. He sees an airplane on fire both fore and aft. The veterans all around him have abandoned the aircraft, and as far as Smith knows, he's alone in the back of a doomed bomber. Remember, this is his first mission. He would have been completely justified in following the veteran gunners out of the hatch, but he doesn't. While cut off and unable to communicate with the cockpit, it seemed to Smith the aircraft was under control and maintaining formation. He wasn't ready to give up yet. Smith recounts, quote, Smoke and gas were very thick. I wrapped a sweater around my face so I could breathe, grabbed a fire extinguisher, and attacked the fire in the radio room. 
Glancing over my shoulder at the tail fire, I thought I saw something coming and ran back. It was Gibson, the tail gunner, painfully crawling back, wounded. He had blood all over him. Unquote. Smith dragged Sergeant Ward Gibson clear of the fire and administered first aid. The badly wounded gunner had been shot in the back. A potentially fatal wound, but in the smoke and the fire and the cramped spaces in the waste compartment of a moving B-17, Smith is able to determine his left lung has been pierced and correctly rolls him up on his side to keep him from drowning in his own blood. With Sergeant Gibson taken care of for now, Smith, the man who no one wanted on their crew, returns to fighting the fires. However, the Germans were not through with a cripple bomber yet. Smith manned the waste guns as the Fock Wolf 190s continued their attacks. He would alternate between manning the guns and fighting the fires. For to him, the fire in the radio compartment was the most intense and threatened the structural integrity of the bomber. Escaping oxygen from the aircraft's shot-out oxygen system had fed the fire there, causing intense heat to melted the radio, gun mount, and strike camera. When the ammunition began to explode, Smith tossed the boxes out through gaping holes in the side of the aircraft. He would continue his battle against the fires and the enemy fighters for almost 90 minutes. Again quoting Smith, I fired another burst from the waste guns and went back to the radio room with the last of the extinguisher fluid. When that ran out, I found a water bottle and urine can and poured those out. After that, I was so mad I urinated on the fire and finally beat on it with my hands and feet until my clothes began to smolder. That FW came around again and I let him have it. That time he left us for good. Fire was under control, more or less, and we were within sight of land. Unquote. Lieutenant Johnson would bring the bomber into the first airfield he could, landing at Perdanac, Cornwall, about 90 minutes after their ordeal began over Brest. Thanks to the ruggedness of the fortress, the skill of its pilots, and the bravery of one screw-up ball turret gunner on his first mission, they had made it home. With over 3,500 bullet and shrapnel holes causing serious damage throughout, the bomber would never fly again. Out of the 29 bombers that actually made the attack on St. Nazaire, seven failed to return to England, and one was damaged beyond repair. The three men who had bailed out as the fires raged aboard Lieutenant Johnson's plane were never seen again. But six men did make it back, saved in large part by the actions of Staff Sergeant Maynard Smith. His Medal of Honor citation reads, Conspicuous gallantry and intrepidity in action above and beyond the call of duty. The aircraft of which Sergeant Smith was a gunner was subjected to intense enemy anti-aircraft fire and determined fighter airplane attacks while returning from a mission over enemy-occupied continental Europe on May 1, 1943. The airplane was hit several times by anti-aircraft fire and cannon shells off the fighter airplanes. Two of the crew were seriously wounded, the aircraft's oxygen system shot out, and several vital control cables severed when intense fires were ignited simultaneously in the radio compartment and waste sections. The situation became so acute that three of the crew bailed out in the comparative safety of the sea. Sergeant Smith, then on his first combat mission, elected to fight the fire by himself, administered first aid to the wounded tail gunner, manned the waste guns, and fought the intense flames alternately. The escaping oxygen fanned the fire to such intense heat that the ammunition in the radio compartment began to explode. The radio gun mount and camera were melted, and the compartment completely gutted. Sergeant Smith threw the exploding ammunition overboard, fought the fire until all firefighting aids were exhausted, manned the workable guns until the enemy fighters were driven away, further administered first aid to his wounded comrade, and then, by wrapping himself in protecting cloth, completely extinguished the fire by hand. This soldier's gallantry in action 
undaunted bravery and loyalty to his aircraft and fellow crew members without regard to his own personal safety is an inspiration to the U.S. Armed Forces. Sergeant Smith would be the first enlisted air crewman to receive the Medal of Honor and the first living recipient from the 8th Air Force. It was a big deal to the 8th Air Force. The Secretary of War, the equivalent of today's Secretary of Defense, was flying over from the States to present the medal. High-ranking brass are going to be there, war correspondents, and whole nine yards. On the day of his medal ceremony, Smith is nowhere to be found. Now it makes me laugh as I think of the 306 commanding officer walking out for the ceremony. Picture scene where there are a couple of cleaned up airplanes staged. The men are all looking good, lined up in formation. Everything looks great. Then the commander looks around and asks, where's Sergeant Smith? The panic that must have ensued at that point is they realized that one key detail had been left out in all their preparations for the ceremony. Funny now? Probably not too funny at the time. Anyway, Smith was quickly found. He was on punitive KP duty, which had been given to him for missing a briefing. He was quickly cleaned up and hustled over for his medal presentation. He would fly an additional four missions before being taken off of flying duties under the guise of operational exhaustion. In reality, his attitude had become intolerable. The 306 was done with him, medal on or not, and he was reassigned to clerical duties and reduced in rank to private. If you've made it all the way through, thanks for listening to my first episode of this podcast. Please let me know any errors or feedback at aviationmoh at gmail.com or through the comments. Any feedback to make me better would be appreciated as well. I'm learning this as I go along. Up next is part two of the Flying Fortress. We're going to stay in 1943 with the 8th Air Force to talk about Bombardier Jack Mathis and the Norden bomb site. Look for that in about a month. Thanks and Semper Fi.